This is Charles Christoph Carter from the Serial Dreadfuls podcast. As part of our periodic commentary, we've decided to include something we call ghost notes. What are ghost notes? They consist of letters, emails, texts, and other communications that have found their way to us. We don't include the author's last names, and we alter their first names when asked to do so. Any emphasis in reading these communications is added for dramatic effect. Are these accounts real, imagined, or simply works of fiction? Take a listen. We'll let you decide. This first ghost note came to us as an email from New Jersey. For reasons that will become clear, the sender has asked us to alter his name. My name is Phil. I'm a big podcast listener. If you had asked me what my favorite podcast was two days ago, I would have told you. But now, I think it's better if I don't. What I can say is that it had to do with cryptids and occasionally conspiracies involving the government. I'll call the host of the podcast, Tim. I followed the podcast on all of the social media sites and became a regular in its forums and chat room. Eventually, I became such a presence on the podcast social media, you know, giving words of encouragement to those fans who had said that they had gone through similar experiences to Tim's guests, as well as calling out trolls and other haters, that Tim emailed me and asked if I wanted to be a moderator for the chat room. I was psyched about the opportunity. Before you jump to any conclusions, yes, I'm actually employed. I work as an IT specialist for a national corporation at one of its data centers located in southern New Jersey. I moderate the chat room for Tim's podcast in my spare time, and yes, I actually have... Well, had a girlfriend too. Her name is Sarah, and she works at a nationally known bank. The last guest Tim had on his podcast was Ricardo, an up-and-coming cryptid researcher who claimed to have found a correlation between the recent disappearances of people from rural routes and cryptid sightings, such as Bigfoot and Dogman. The chat room went crazy when that episode dropped, especially since Tim and Ricardo both joined the chat to answer questions from Tim's listeners. I had to kick off several trolls who were going out of their way to trash not just Tim's fans, but also Tim and Ricardo personally, calling them a bunch of scammers, saying they were both full of shit and trying to make a buck off of their gullible followers and listeners. Toward the end of that chat session, Tim and Ricardo stunned everyone by telling them they were headed out to do some investigations together and that they would in fact be broadcasting live from the road. Being an IT guy, I emailed Tim afterward to let him know that he could reach out to me if he had any questions about what equipment or services he should use to make sure that his upcoming podcast was flawless. In fact, I offered to loan him $2,000 all-in-one microphones from a German company made specifically for capturing and recording audio on the go. He emailed me back, thanking me and accepting my offer. He said that he and Ricardo would be passing through my area heading to Pennsylvania, 
so we arranged to meet up at a diner that was a well-known landmark in the area. We could finally meet face-to-face, and I could walk him and Ricardo through how to use the mics. I waited for Tim and Ricardo on a bench outside the diner. Tim ended up being taller and about 15 pounds heavier than I had imagined. I already knew what Ricardo looked like. His picture was splashed all over the Bigfoot encrypted websites and blogs. Tim and Ricardo were even funnier and more interesting in person. Definitely not a letdown. We ordered something to eat, and while waiting for our orders, I showed them both the mics and walked them through their use. Following a little small talk after having eaten, Tim paid for everything, thanked me again as to Ricardo, and we parted ways. I told them I'd be waiting to hear about what they found on their trip. That was three months ago. Our dinner together at the diner was the last I had heard from either one of them. Needless to say, the podcast never dropped. I tried logging on to the chat room for Tim's podcast, but it was no longer there. By no longer there, I mean that all the domain names that Tim had previously registered for use with his podcast were suddenly available for purchase. Both the blog and the landing page for the podcast were gone. The podcast Twitter handle and Twitter feed were nowhere to be found, and it seemed like the rest of his social media presence had also been totally erased. I tried emailing Tim for the hundredth time, but like all the other emails I had sent, it got bounced back to my account with an error message informing me that it was undeliverable. I was at a loss as to what had happened to the podcast. It was as if it had never existed. Most importantly, though, I was at a loss as to what had happened to Tim and Ricardo. I ended up starting my own podcast. Its entire premise was to investigate and find out answers to the mysterious going-on surrounding Tim's podcast and Tim and Ricardo's disappearances. A week before my first episode was scheduled to be released, strange things began happening. I woke up in the middle of the night and went downstairs to get something cold to drink. As I passed my front door, I noticed through the glass that there was a car parked in front of my house. From the light of the street lamp, I could see the silhouette of what looked like a man. It wasn't even a second before I saw the red light followed by the smoke of what I took to be a cigarette. I didn't think much of it at the time. I just went to the kitchen, got my drink, and headed back to bed. As I passed the door the second time, I took a quick look out the glass toward the street. The car was gone. As I stood there contemplating what had happened, another car stopped in the exact same spot in front of my house, turned off its lights, and shut off its engine. Weird. I told Sarah about what had happened. She said I was paranoid and that Tim probably had some real-life problems and shut the podcast down himself. I told her that it had PDFs of the domain registrar information for the domain names Tim had purchased for use with the podcast, blogs, and landing page, from before Tim and Ricardo went missing. No, I wasn't cyber-stalking Tim. I was just a huge fanboy. I told her that it showed that he had paid two years in advance and that the domain names weren't supposed to be available for purchase by the public for another six months. She threw up her hands, said I was being crazy, and left for work. Over the past few days, I started noticing large black SUVs following me on my way to work. Today, it was a black town car. It could be a coincidence, but something strange happened today at a fast food joint. I went there on my lunch break, and two guys in suits came in and sat at the booth in front of me. The guy with his back to me seemed to be doing all the talking. 
I noticed the beige coil of an earpiece running from the back of his ear and down the collar of his shirt. The guy with him wore mirrored sunglasses. By the position of his head, I couldn't tell if he was looking at the guy across from him or at me. He never shifted his head once the entire time I was there. When I returned to work, I noticed that I missed one call and a voicemail on my phone, which was strange because it never rang or vibrated once. It was Sarah. I listened to the voicemail. She was in tears. She told me she had to leave, that it was her, not me. She said she just couldn't do this anymore. I was floored. It was so totally out of the blue. Not in a million years had I seen this coming. Just the day before, we had made plans to visit her parents in Connecticut for the weekend. Now this? I faked being sick and left work early. I headed straight home, hoping Sarah might be there, that I could find out what had happened, maybe talk some sense into her. As soon as I entered the house, I knew something was wrong. Everything that had belonged to Sarah was missing. I bolted up the stairs to our bedroom. Her side of the closet had been totally cleaned out. What the fuck was going on? I got into my car and decided to go to the mall, somewhere public. I turned off my phone and took out this battery and SIM card. I knew that what I had just done would be useless if my car had a tracking device on it, but I was trying my best to keep it together and not let everything come flooding into my mind all at once. I was stopped at a red light when I noticed a large black SUV in the turn lane facing my direction. I looked at the driver. He was dressed just like the guys at the fast food joint, but it wasn't either one of them. He wore dark sunglasses and seemed to be looking back at me. There was a weird set to his jaw. As my light turned green, I accelerated, still keeping the guy's face in view. His nostrils flared and he grimaced. The last thing I remember was the sound of metal crunching and being thrown into the passenger seat of my car. I woke up in the emergency room of a hospital hooked up to all sorts of drips, IVs, heart monitors, etc. Good, you're awake. You just hang in there, hun. I'll go and get the doctor, said a cheery woman wearing dark blue scrubs. How are you feeling, Philip? Came a deep male voice to my right. I turned my head slowly in the direction of the man's voice. The man was middle-aged, nondescript, with a very forgettable face. You had quite the accident, he said, pointing to my leg, which was in traction, and then to my left arm, which was in the cast. Huh? It's the pain meds, Philip. They make you groggy. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me. I want you to concentrate. Uh, okay. Good, the man said. As he stood up from the chair he had been sitting on, he lifted up a leather briefcase from the floor placed it on the seat of the chair, and popped its locks. He opened it and retrieved a translucent plastic IV bag filled with a bright yellow liquid. As the man spoke, he attached the IV containing the bright yellow liquid to the metal IV pole next to my bed. With measured speed, he attached the IV line from the bag and hooked it into the main IV line going into the shunt in my wrist. He opened the line until there was a rapid, steady drip. Now, Philip... We took Sarah away from you. My eyes went wide with shock. The man put a finger to his lips. Shh. She's fine. She's with her parents. But she will never speak to you or acknowledge your existence for as long as she lives. Understand? Tears began to run from the corner of my eyes. This podcast thing you're doing. 
The one where you're going to find out what happened to your friends. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Know why? The man waved his hand flamboyantly over my body, like he was unveiling a new car at the New York Auto Show. We can take away everything you ever loved. Everyone you ever loved. And it doesn't mean a damn thing to us. You ever want to work again? Want to keep your house? Want to stay alive? Then don't go putting your nose where it doesn't belong, like your friends did. They wanted to find out what was in the woods and why people were disappearing? Let's just say they ended up getting everything they wished for. Now, if you don't want to up and disappear, forget about all of this and go back to your nice, boring job and your nice, boring life. Got it? Remember, anytime. We can get you anytime we want. And with that, he left. A few minutes later, the ER doctor came in. What in heaven's name? she asked. Candace, who hooked this vitamin B drip to Mr. Silver? I don't know, Dr. Sloan, the nurse responded. Needless to say, I've given up the podcast. Hell, I've given up podcasts in general. Now I mostly read. Every now and again, I think I see someone looking at me extra hard, too hard, there to send me a message, to stop looking for the truth, not to get out of line. We received this next ghost note from Anthony on Long Island. He gave us permission to tell his story as long as we didn't use his last name or the real name of his friend. My name is Anthony. My friends call me Ant for short. I grew up in Uniondale, New York. For those of you who don't know, that's on Long Island. From the time I first started school, it's always been me and Trey. We were inseparable. We went everywhere together, did everything together. It got to the point where our own parents began calling us brothers from another mother. We were in and out of each other's houses all the time. Sleeping over at each other's houses during the week was normal for us. Trey's family had been up north so long, they didn't even know if they had any roots in the south. Trey's father joked that his great aunt had thought they were from Alabama or North Carolina originally. Trey's mother's family had immigrated from Jamaica to Canada several generations ago, eventually moving to the U.S. My family's from the south, Virginia specifically. Both my grandmothers moved up north as young women, worked as maids in rich white folks' houses, put themselves through nursing school, and eventually saved up enough money to move their families from Brooklyn to Queens. My grandmother on my mom's side died before I was born, but my grandmother on my dad's side was always there for me growing up. She moved in with us after she and my folks pooled their money together and bought the house I grew up in. Grandma was straight southern. She had grown up in the country and would tell me stories about men going to the crossroads to sell their souls to play guitar, ghost trains that would run through town in the middle of the night, ghosts hovering above their graves in the cemetery. She told me that both of us had the gift. That's why she and I had a strong connection. She said that it had skipped my father. That was why he couldn't understand about the tinctures and tonics she'd make or the herbs she had planted in the front and backyards. Our house wasn't as nice as the house Trey and his family lived in. Trey's dad was an accountant and owned his own business. His mom was a secretary for an executive for a big bank on the island. Every new toy, Trey had it. He and I would go to Jamaica Ave and buy clothes. I'd come back with a shirt. Trey would come back with a whole new wardrobe. I don't want you to think that I'm a hater. I'm not. 
It never bothered me that Trey and his family had more money than my family. What bothered me was that despite all Trey had, it was never enough. We used to play a game, imagining what we'd do if we were rich. We'd fantasize about which hot movie or R&B star we'd have as our wife and how many mansions or islands we'd own. Trey said that one day he was going to have all of that. As we got older and more realistic, we used to ask each other what we could do to get that type of money. We'd say the obvious things, become a sports star. We'd both joke that since neither of us could sing worth a damn, we could become rap stars. Things like that. But as time went on, Trey would ask me what I would and wouldn't do to become rich. What, like dealing drugs? Yeah, that. Other things, he replied. I told him that I wasn't down with that, especially since dealing drugs was a quick way of getting sent to jail, or worse, a bullet. I asked him what he'd do to get rich. Whatever it took, I remember him answering. I laughed. Come on, you telling me you'd be a hitman or something? He just stared at me coldly. If it got me paid, hell yes. I looked at him hard for a moment. Suddenly he broke out laughing, pointing at me. Gotcha. Man, you should have seen your face. Of course I wouldn't do that shit. What's wrong with you? I laughed, but that moment has always stuck in my memory. I ended up getting a full scholarship to a big-name university in New Jersey. Trey ended up going to one of the local universities on the island. Being that far away from one another, we began to lose touch. At first, we'd call and email each other every day. Then each day became a couple of times a week which became once or twice a month, until the only time we'd contact or see each other would be during the holidays and breaks from school. Grandma passed away just before I graduated high school. It was sudden to all of us, but thinking back, I think Grandma knew she was dying. She just didn't let anyone know. I guess she thought it would be easier on us that way. She was the rock of our family. I remember her calling me into her room and having me sit down on the bed a week and a half before she died. Anthony, you know I'm not always going to be here, baby. What, are you sick, Grandma? Something wrong? She smiled, shook her head, and patted my knee. No, baby, nothing's wrong. I just need to tell you a few things, that's all. They may be hard to hear, but you need to know, okay? I nodded my head yes. Trey ain't shit, baby. You're a better friend to him than he is to you. First time you start doing better than him, he and you are going to have problems. Watch him, baby. You watch him. She was right. It was hard to hear, and I didn't want to believe her. But on some level, deep down inside, I knew she was right. When Trey and I drifted apart, I thought back to what Grandma had said and figured that everything had worked out the way it should have. I didn't go home for summer break after my sophomore year. I worked as an intern at a tech company in Manhattan. Before beginning my junior year, my mom told me that Trey had dropped out of school to pursue a music career. He had gotten the attention of some local music reps who had convinced him to move out to California. His parents were furious. It wasn't until I was about to begin my first job after graduation that I heard from Trey. He told me that he was back in the neighborhood, that his career was about to blow up, and that he wanted to hang with his boy one last time while he could. We agreed to meet up in the city. When I saw Trey, I barely recognized him. Fur coat, gold chains and rings, tattoos everywhere. His name was inked under his left eye. He had this big Asian guy with him. He said he was his bodyguard. You got it like that, yo? He smiled, showing a gold and diamond grill. You know it. We hit a restaurant so exclusive that the president of the company I was working for was on a two-month waiting list just to get in. 
We hit the strip clubs after that. He handed me two bricks of cash, one singles and one hundreds. They're not for you, they're for the ladies. I nodded my head, smiling like an idiot. I'd never seen that much cash in my life. The sun was just beginning to come up when he and his bodyguard dropped me off at my place in his limo. We hugged and patted each other hard on the back, just like old times. I'm proud of you, man, I said. Same here, bro. Look at you. Computer scientist and shit, he laughed. Needless to say, after a night like that, I collapsed on my bed and passed out. Baby, Anthony, Anthony, it was Grandma's voice. Get up, boy. Get up now. She was pissed. One of the few things that had inspired fear in me growing up was Grandma's temper. She was a wonderful woman, but you did not want to get her angry, and now she was angry. Get your ass up out of that bed now and you check the back pockets of your pants. Now. Do it now. That boy Trey passed you a note. You go to Miss Barnes. Tell her that you're my grandson and show her that note. Do it now, baby. Please. It was her pleading with me at the end that woke me up. It had been a dream, but it so disturbed me that I jumped out of bed and rifled through the back pockets of my pants that were hanging from the doorknob of my closet. Metro card, receipts, wait, what the hell? A neatly folded piece of paper. It had been folded several times, like you would when passing a note in class. I opened it. There was strange, splotchy writing on it and some type of brown ink. I had never seen writing like this before. It looked ritualistic, like something you'd see in one of those creepy horror movies. I knew I hadn't put it in my pants pocket. Trey. I had only been asleep an hour. I got dressed and rushed to the subway. I needed to get to Brooklyn and to the nursing home Grandma had worked at. She and Miss Barnes had both worked third shift there together, and she would be getting off in an hour. Anthony? Hey, baby, what are you doing here? I told Miss Barnes about the dream I had. Hell, I didn't know if it was a dream or not, even now. A serious look came over Miss Barnes' usual cheerful cherubic brown face. She took out her cell phone and made a call. I don't know who she was talking to, but it sounded like whoever it was was telling her what to do. You're coming home with me, baby. We've got to make some stops on the way. She punched out, grabbed my wrist hard, and dragged me behind her like a toddler. First, we stopped at a Middle Eastern shop where she bought oils, charcoal, and incense. Not the sticks, the actual resins. Next stop was a botanica where she purchased bunches of dried herbs that the storekeeper had to go in the back to get. When we arrived at Miss Barnes's apartment, there were several women inside, all around Mrs. Barnes's age. There was one exception, a much older woman who was sitting on a straight-backed chair directing the others. She motioned me to come over to her. So, you're Ida's grandson. She grabbed my right hand, turned it over, and looked at my palm. Hmm, strong, like Ida. She looked up. Show it to me. I took the folded piece of paper and handed it to the old lady. She unfolded it with her thin, wrinkled fingers. Her mouth turned down into a frown. Evie, start preparing the holy water, honey, the old woman called out. On it, Miss Henry, someone called out. One of the ladies handed me a mug. Drink it, honey, said Miss Henry. I know it smells bad, but it's going to help save you. From now on, the only thing you can have is water. No food, not till this is done. I hesitated my nostrils flaring at the stink coming from the black liquid in the mug. Go on now, drink up. 
I held my nose as I downed the putrid liquid. Is the room ready? Miss Henry called out. Almost finished, came a voice from the back of the apartment. Come on, girls, there's not much time, Miss Henry shouted. It was then that my stomach started gurgling and rumbling. I sprinted to the bathroom where I swear to you I must have gotten rid of everything I'd eaten for the past six months. There was a knock on the door. Go on and take a shower, honey. When you're done, wrap yourself in a towel and come on out here. I did as I was told and stepped into the hallway. This way, honey, the voice came from the bedroom. All of the women were dressed in white. Many of them were holding glass vases filled with water. Each contained a crucifix and had something that looked like salt or sugar at the bottom. Other women were holding the vials of oils Miss Barnes and I had picked up earlier. In the center of the room was a galvanized washtub lined with white towels. Miss Henry motioned for me to get in the tub. Do as I say, honey. I crossed the room and stepped into the tub. Miss Barnes took a couple of steps towards me. We've got to wash you now, baby. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I can wash myself. I, I'm not comfortable with this. Trust us, baby. You ain't got anything none of us ain't ever seen before. You just close your eyes. It'll be over fast. I felt totally embarrassed. I squinted my eyes hard as hands removed the towel from me and sponges began washing me. It reminded me of washing a dog. Pure business and not fun for any of the parties involved. Almost done, honey, came an unfamiliar voice from over my shoulder. We're just going to put these oils on you and dress you. They put a long white cotton shirt over me that came down to my knees and sat me on one of the many chairs that they had brought in from the dining room. The women sat in a circle around me facing outward, Miss Henry directly in front of me facing the bedroom door, her back to me. A ring of salt encircled all of us. Now we wait, Miss Henry said. It didn't take long. We didn't have to wait until 3 a.m. or anything like that. It was 1.30 in the afternoon when all hell broke loose in that apartment. It started with the sound of the front door being ripped off its hinges and thrown against Miss Barnes's china cabinet. Loud, heavy footsteps. They sounded like hoofbeats, except that instead of four legs, it sounded like there were two. The hoofbeats came down the hall slowly, deliberately, stopping at the bedroom door. The doorknob turned slowly, first right, then left. Suddenly, there was a sound of something sniffing at the door. It started at the bottom and then went all the way to the top of the door. Then the tapping and scratching started. A little boy's voice came from the other side of the door. Mama, is that you? Let me in, Mama. I'm scared. There's a bad man out here who wants to hurt me. Please, Mama, help me. One of the women's heads shot toward the door. Keith? Keith, baby, it's Mama. The woman began to stand up, but the other woman grabbed her and pushed her back down into her seat. Lucy, you know damn well that ain't your boy out there. Sit down and get it together, girl. You're right. You're right. It's just that it's been so long since I heard his voice. It'll do anything to try to get us to break this circle so it can get to the boy. It'll kill us all if it can. We've got to be strong for us and the boy, said Miss Henry. Lucy calmed down. The other women took their positions. The wooden door groaned as a bowed inward. First splinters, then cracks appeared until finally the door exploded inward into the bedroom. A dark mist entered the room surrounding us. Voices from within taunted us, speaking in the voices of dead loved ones, ex-lovers, abusive parents, the voices of all our regrets, 
fears, and lost chances. Each of the women, a crucifix clutched in between their hands, began praying in earnest. Six of the women would pray to God for our deliverance, while another six would offer him praise, speaking his greatness over all things. This went on for what seemed like hours, until finally the black mist gathered itself back together and retreated from the bedroom and out of the apartment. Who, child, it's over. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father in heaven. It's over. Miss Henry led us all in a prayer before we left the protective circle. That evening on the national news, there was a breaking story about a young up-and-coming rap star found murdered and mutilated in his home. They said that because of the gruesomeness of the crime, the police believed that it had been perpetrated by the Russian or Colombian mafia and was most likely drug-related. Before I had left Miss Barnes's apartment, I had asked Miss Henry what had tried to kill me. A demon, she said. She told me that Trey had chosen me as a sacrifice for fame and fortune, that the sacrifice always had to be someone the person loved. She said that the note he had placed in my pocket had set my death for a specific time. Once that time had passed, I was no longer in danger. I asked her what would happen now. She said that a life had to be taken. If it wasn't the life of the person chosen to be sacrificed, then it had to be the life of the person who had made the deal and conjured the demon. That since the demon had been unable to kill me, it would return to Trey. Sitting on my bed now, looking at the TV, I remembered what Trey had told me all those years ago. That he'd do whatever it took to get rich. I had never in a million years, thought that that would have meant killing me. Thank you, Grandma, for seeing what I couldn't, and for believing what I wouldn't. I promised the sender of the last ghost note of this episode complete anonymity, since his work involves forensic data recovery from computer and electronic devices. Despite the fact that he's basically sworn to secrecy, he believes that it's imperative that people know the truth about what's really out there. My name is Michael. Up until last week, things were going pretty great in my life. I had just left my job as a high-powered corporate attorney, having made enough money from the time I started working in a major law firm fresh out of law school until now to start my life over and stop trading my time for money. I had decided to move to the country, buy some land, settle down, actually start living and enjoying life. I came across a piece of property for sale in northern Vermont that was right up my alley. It was 20 plus acres and pretty much away from everything. I called the seller and made arrangements to go to the area and check it out. He told me that I'd have to act fast, that he had several interested parties, and that he didn't know how long the property would be on the market. Being an attorney from New York, I wasn't falling for that BS. I told him that I was prepared to wire him $5,000 to hold it for me until I saw it. I told him that whether I bought it or not, I'd let him keep 2500 of the five grand for the bother. He bit. Problem solved. I made it up to the property three days after having wired the seller the money. I thought I knew what out of the way meant, but this place gave the phrase a whole new meaning. According to the seller, the property had originally been a logging camp a hundred or more years ago. The company that had owned the camp went belly up. Because of the structures on the property, the Forest Service ended up buying the property for a pittance at auction. 
They built a fire tower up on a ridge toward the back of the property, overlooking the forest and valley to the east. In an unusual move, the Forest Service made the property available for purchase after about 70 years, and the seller's father ended up buying it. He said that the place was now used primarily as a hunting camp, and that if I didn't use it myself, I could make a little money renting it out during hunting season. The seller said he was looking to offload the property for enough money to pay the back taxes and give his family a new start somewhere warm and with more opportunities. When I told him that I planned on upgrading the buildings and living up there full-time, I half expected him to die laughing. He didn't. Instead, all the blood drained from his pink-colored face, and he told me that what I was proposing to do was a terrible idea. He said that the property was too far away from anywhere to be safe. He informed me that it was eight miles from the property halfway up the mountain to the main road, and that there was no one in between. He was clearly agitated by what I had said, and I half thought that he was going to rescind the offer, so I sweetened the deal by tacking on ten grand to the asking price. He stared at me hard for about a minute, his jaw muscles working the whole time. He asked if I was married. I told him no. Engaged? No. Any children? Not that I knew of, I laughed. The expression on his face never wavered. It was as serious as a heart attack. Finally, we shook hands and drove to his lawyer's office to finalize everything. As we parted ways, he told me to be careful and to rethink my plans. He said that the property was too wild to think about building a permanent home up there. Stupid me. I should have listened. I purchased a property in early spring and hired local carpenters and electricians to fix up the main building, with a plan of fixing up the rest of the outbuildings the following spring. I had the grand idea of turning this diamond in a rough into a destination wedding location and making a killing. The local laborers and craftsmen were hard workers, but I couldn't get them to stay on the property to continue working past 5 p.m. I couldn't even bribe them with beer, weed, or a cookout. Nope, they had their tools packed into their trucks every day by 4.35 at the latest and made sure they were off the mountain before 5 o'clock even hit. I should have read the signs more clearly. I'd done the same thing in my line of work. If you're going to waste your money paying me for something that's completely stupid, then who am I to argue? I see it now. I was too arrogant to see it then. Anyway, I was in full back-to-the-land mode. I had spoken with some of the local farmers in the valley and had purchased a few breeding pair of hogs, some chickens, and a cow. One of the farmers had thrown in his son's dog for free since his son was all the way in California going to school and hadn't been back home in a year and a half. The dog's name was Moose, and his size lived up to the name. He was a German Shepherd Rottweiler mix. Just looking at him made your sphincter tighten, but like so many large, seemingly ferocious dogs, he was a teddy bear when it came to his owners. Moose and I became fast friends, but I had to keep him chained while the men worked on the place. He scared the shit out of them. This made me happy since I figured that word would get around the area and I wouldn't have to worry about any unexpected visitors paying me any visits or playing any pranks during the night. The place was moving ready by the early fall. I had tried to get the phone company to run a line up to the place, but they had given me the runaround. It looked like it would be spring before I could even attempt to convince them to do it, even on my own dime. 
Instead, I installed a satellite dish that allowed me to get both internet and phone service. It cost a pretty penny, but it was the only practical solution to the problem. It seemed like the same outfit that owned the phone company also owned the electric company since they too informed me that there was no way they were going to string power lines up to my place anytime soon. So I installed a few banks of solar panels, a wind turbine, and a water-powered generator hooked up to a small waterfall a couple hundred yards from the main house. I bought a shit ton of firewood and got ready to enjoy my new life in the mountains. It was the night of October 1st when everything started going sideways. The god-awfulest squeaks and shrieks you ever heard woke me out of a dead sleep. Moose was standing at attention by the bedroom door, head pointed in the direction of the sound. That's when we both heard it. This low, rumbling growl, followed by a high-pitched scream which caused Moose to drop to the floor, whining while I covered my ears and clenched my jaws in pain. I'd never heard anything like it before in my life. There was no way I was going outside to see what had made that noise. Fuck that. I decided to wait until morning. I patted the empty spot next to me on the bed and called Moose. He and I hunkered down together, neither of us going back to sleep. I waited a few hours past sunrise before I ventured out to check on the hogs. What I found was straight out of a slasher flick. Blood and pig guts were strewn everywhere, as were various parts of the animals. What was weird was that I figured a predator would have eaten the animal parts. Instead, it was as if whatever it was had torn the hogs apart, out of either pure rage or just for the fun of it. I did find two of the hogs intact, if you could even call it that. As disturbing as the bloodbath had been, it was nothing compared to what met my eyes when I found those two animals. You ever see something that made you so scared that your balls try to pull up into your body? Well, that's what happened when I saw what was left of those two hogs. Neither of them had any noticeable external injuries. No, instead, it looked like something that put a straw down their throats and sucked out everything from the inside. They were deflated. Hell, they looked mummified. Their ribs were sticking out so much under their skin that I could have played them like a xylophone. I took pictures of everything on my phone and went to check on the other animals. The chickens seemed like they were agitated, and the cow was very skittish. I put Moose in my SUV and went to the nearest state police barracks for some answers. I showed the pictures to the officer on duty. He passed around my phone to several of his colleagues, who also took a look and gave their opinions. Bear, they said. I asked about the two hogs that looked like they had a literal life sucked out of them. They couldn't speak to that but they all definitely agreed that the slaughter had been the work of a bear. I asked them why the bear hadn't eaten any of the hogs. They didn't have an answer. They just kept telling me that it had been a bear and that I should consider getting a high-powered rifle for protection. Bear my ass, but I did end up going to a local gun dealer and purchasing the largest caliber rifle he had. Things were quiet for the next few nights. One thing they never tell you is how early the sun goes down the further north you go, and by the night of the second incident, the sun had begun to set at 3.30 in the afternoon. I had started to go to sleep at around 5 in the evening and getting up at 1.30 in the morning. I'd cook something to eat and sit up the rest of the night keeping watch for whatever it was to come back. Things went on like this for almost a week. I was starting to believe what the state troopers had told me. At around 2.15 in the morning, I heard wood breaking, 
followed by the desperate, frantic moos of my milk cow. I jumped up, got my flashlight and rifle, and hauled ass out of the house and toward the barn. The light from the flashlight bounced erratically as I ran, illuminating the tree line, then the ground, then the hog pen, and finally the barn. In the flashlight's weak amber-colored light, I came upon the scene that stopped me dead in my tracks. I felt the strength leave my body, and it was all I could do to remain standing. The flashlight fell from my weakened grip and hit the ground, rolling slightly to the left, lighting the horrific and murderous scene before me. Something the size of a bull moose and covered in long, scraggly hair had ripped open the side of the barn and was now killing my milk cow. It was shaking the front portion of itself violently as an ungodly slurping sound filled my ears. As bad as that sound was, it was nothing compared to the horrible moos coming from the cow. They were the loudest, most desperate sounds of suffering I've ever heard from any living thing. They were almost pleading, pleading with whatever it was to stop pleading with me to do something. I just wanted it to end. My stomach began to wrench every time the cow let out one of its desperate bellows. A ringing had begun in my ears. Black bars formed on the periphery of my vision and started closing in on one another, like an old-fashioned TV set when you turn it on or off. I couldn't take the cow's pathetic cries anymore. I knew I was about to pass out. And I knew I couldn't do that, not with that thing just yards away. Without thinking, I put the rifle to my shoulder and fired at the creature in front of me. The cow's pleas for mercy didn't stop. They just became more subdued as the creature slightly turned what must have been its head in my direction. The glassy reflection from what I could only think must have been an eye. Blood-spattered teeth, each the length and diameter of my forearm. Something that looked like a large, rough, black garden hose, I think. I I can't be certain. The thing let out a low, guttural growl. My insides vibrated like they were made of jelly. I dropped my rifle. The monkey part of my brain making me break and run faster than I ever thought possible. It sounded like there was a herd of elephants behind me. Somehow, in all of this, I could hear the hooves of the cow stagger and then his body hit the wooden planks of the barn floor behind me. Moose came running out of the front door of the house. He flew past me and towards the monstrosity on my heels. I heard Moose bark, then growl like he had something between his jaws. Then I heard him let out a short whimper. Then a long whimper, accompanied by the sound you hear when you split a large ripe watermelon open, only a hundred times louder. I cut into the house, slamming and locking the front door. I quickly scaled the ladder to the loft, pulling it up behind me. The sound of my pounding heart filled my ears. Something slammed into the house, shaking it to its foundation, causing the entire structure to wobble back and forth. The lights flickered on and off. Again, something slammed into the house, this time knocking me off of my knees where I was kneeling and onto my right side. Unnaturally loud footsteps, the kind you hear in dinosaur movies, circled the house. This was followed by a loud snort, then the sound of breaking glass and crunching metal. Finally, the footfalls began to retreat back into the woods. 
After about an hour, I finally had enough courage to go back downstairs. I looked down at my pants. They were drenched in my own piss. After a few steps, I realized that at some point, I had shit myself too. I cleaned myself up as fast as I could, grabbed my keys to the SUV, and carefully and quietly opened the front door. The damage to the house from what I could see was extensive, but I could care less. The only thing I wanted to do was get the hell out of there. And that's when I saw my SUV. It looked like an elephant, a rhino, and a hippo, each with full-on roid rage, had attacked the vehicle. The only way I was getting off this mountain was on foot. That's when I heard the snap of tree branches further up in the wood line. It was followed by a low growl and a snort. I backed quickly into the house and secured the door the best I could. I tried calling out, but for some reason my calls wouldn't go through. No internet either. It's the damnedest thing. I'm writing all of this on my cell phone, just in case. Just in case. Hmm, better not to think of it. Gotta stay positive if I'm going to get through this. I have enough food and water for a few more days. Problem is, I don't know if I'm going to last that long. I thought about waiting it out, hoping for someone to come check on me, but frankly, I don't think that's going to happen. I had casually mentioned to one of the carpenters who'd worked on the place, the only one who'd at least give me the time of day, that I was thinking about going back to New York early to visit my family, and that I'd probably stay through the holidays. Whatever that thing is, it was smart enough to wreck my only means of transportation off this godforsaken mountain. I know it sounds crazy, but I think it has something to do with fucking up the satellite dish so I can't get help. The fucker just keeps circling the property. During the daylight, I can hear it off in the wood line. At night, shit. At night is when I hear the sniffing. Sometimes it'll start at one of the windows and make its way slowly to the front door, where it pushes against it to the point I can hear the wood begin to crack. Then it will ease off. It does this every night. Last night, I heard scratching, no, clawing at the walls. The front door's not going to hold, and I don't think it's going to last another night. I'm out of options. I'm going to head out early tomorrow morning, just after sunrise. I'll stick to the road. Hopefully I'll make it. It's either that or slip my wrists and have them find me in the spring. Wish me luck. I'm going to need every last bit of it. Michael. This supposedly came from a phone found by a hunter. I checked into whether Michael really existed and found out that he in fact had been a senior level corporate attorney with one of the top law firms in Manhattan. I looked a little further and found out that yes, there is a deed to a 20-acre piece of property in his name located in a remote area on the side of a mountain in northern Vermont. Out of curiosity, I gave a call to the state trooper's barracks closest to Michael's property. The officer I spoke with told me I wasn't the first person to call regarding this, quote, internet creepypasta bullshit. He said that when they went up to check on Michael, he was nowhere to be found. I asked about the weird deflated condition of the hogs and the cow. The officer said that Michael was a cruel son of a bitch and that the animals had looked that way because he had kept them pinned when he left. As a result, they starved to death. End of story. 
He also told me that they had my phone number and that if I called again with this bullshit, they'd notify my local police precinct and make sure I had a nice long talk with their brothers in blue down in New York. Michael's family hasn't heard from him since they last spoke with him on the phone about him coming down early to visit for the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. If you've enjoyed listening to Ghost Notes, why not become a Dreadnought by signing up on our Patreon page? It's only $3 a month for original content you can't get anywhere else. Thank you.